0: So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter seven, but I want to go back a, a chapter or two into chapter five verse verse nine, and this is you know you're running along, we're following the 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 uh, author, the pastor's heart as he delivers the sermon and writing to them, and you get to verse uh, nine and around this section, and then he he has to end up, end up changing subjects so As you get to chapter 7, verse 1, he resumes this subject. So verse 9, having uh, been perfected, he became author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing." For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. And he continues on and rebukes them for their arrested state of spiritual development, that they've become lazy listeners. And he says, I want to talk about hard stuff, but I don't know that you can handle hard stuff gives a severe warning in the opening verses of chapter 6. In the second half of chapter 6, he writes to affirm that he believes they are people of faith and that they are the ones that are walking in salvation. And so as you move into chapter 7, he resumes the topic of talking about things that are hard to explain. So as you sit and you listen today, like, man, this is kind of hard to follow. Yeah, you've been warned ahead of time by the Holy Spirit. These are hard things to, to talk about, but they're important. I think you'll see them. I, I think you're going to see them. Uh, you guys love the Word. You dig into the Word. Um, I see Bibles out there. I see notebooks and pens, so that's a good sign. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, the title is Perfection in Jesus. So the writer is going to show these believing Jews, that if they were to enter back into the Levitical system of the sacrifices and the, and the law, that it's not going to benefit them. That priesthood is done. It's done. And because the priesthood is done, so is the system that the priesthood ministered to. And that system is the Mosaic law, the, the covenant, the old covenant, So this is a big point that he's going to make. And he's going to just kind of solidify and say, Jesus is the perfect one. Jesus is the the final answer. And he's going to do this by laying out an argument based upon uh, Christ's similarity uh, to Melchizedek prophecies that were concerning the order of Melchizedek and how Jesus came and is the fulfillment of them all. So we begin reading in verses 1 through 3, and as we read verses 1 through 3, it's kind of like, here he is. And then in the rest of the section we're going to study today, he's going to drill back down into each one of those subjects. So we're going to get a quick and kind of biographical sketch of Melchizedek. We're going to go to the Old Testament, look at a few things. We're going to see that. And then we're going to go and look at his argument and, and comparison with Jesus. So we begin reading. And just answering the question, who is Melchizedek? Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. I'd like to take, before we dive into some of those comments, I want to just read a couple of other verses. Because there's not much on Melchizedek outside of Hebrews. Hebrews talks about Melchizedek far more than any other place in Scripture. But the first place Melchizedek is mentioned, and it was alluded to in what we just read, is in Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis 14, 18 through 20, we read this. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Well, those are some interesting elements, aren't they? It reminds us of the, the Passover meal that Jesus took and then instituted into that communion service that, that we participate in. Jesus said that his bread was the, the bod- his body and that the, the wine was his blood. He says he was the priest of God most high and he blessed him and said blessed be abraham of god most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be god most high who was delivered who has delivered your enemies into your hand and he gave him a tithe of all so it's kind of the same thing i just want you to see it in that place then you have this one little verse in psalm 110 verse 4 that becomes so significant I want this to be in your mind. Sometimes you'll hear people say, yeah, but it only mentions that once in the Bible. Well, here's the once mention of something in the Bible. As we work through our study today, watch how how significant it is when God says something, even if it's only once. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, According to the order of Melchizedek. So, this is a messianic prophecy written there in the Psalms, and it looks forward to this coming. So, you have these two brief mentions of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, which is safe to say that nobody was putting it all together. Nobody was thinking about Jesus in this Melchizedek order. It was just some stuff in the Bible that was kind of lying dormant, waiting for the time to come when the significance and the meaning of it all would come together. The day in which Jesus came and and served and ministered as this high priest. So this passage particularly Psalm 110, the prophecy, it puts uh, Melchizedek on the prophecy radar. That one was going to come according to this order of Melchizedek. And of course, we know so clearly that this was a messianic prophecy. Well, let's look back in Hebrews, uh, verse 1. I'm not going to dig deep into this. Uh, What we read, first of all, is that Melchizedek was a king of Salem or Jerusalem, He's a priest of the Most High God. Uh, He met Abraham when he was coming back from a a victory over some kings of the east. And there was a spoil that he took. And so we have this interchange that we just read about. But Melchizedek was a priest and a king. But in the law of Moses, that, that never could happen in Israel. Because the priests were always from the tribe of what? Levi. And, and the kings were always, always from the tribe of Judah. They were descendants of David. So these two could never meet because they had a different line, a different family with which they were connected. But 400 years before the law, we see Melchizedek carrying both of these titles as both king and priest. And we're going to see that Jesus is that king and he is that priest. Um, The other thing that we read there in verse 1 is that as he returned from the slaughter, um, that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And we're going to find out that it is always the uh, greater who blesses the lesser. If you're going to give a blessing, it's got to come from one that's greater. Now, you know, we read this and we're like, okay, okay, all right. But you, can you just imagine in the minds of these believing Jews that as they hear and they know the story, as they begin to contemplate, wait a minute, that's right. Melchizedek did bless Abram. And it's always the greater, this blessing the lesser. And then we come to his name which I think is highly significant. We're told that it means king of righteousness here in verse two, and king of peace. His name is significant because these are the things that Jesus attends to in his ministry. One of the main works of Christ is to produce in us the righteousness of God. And that righteousness does not come by my good works or my good effort. There's a sanctification that happens as I follow the Lord But this righteousness that we're talking about here that Christ brings is something that is apart from works. And it is the righteousness of God. It's not the righteousness of a good man and woman. It's the righteousness of God. And this righteousness, we're going to read here in just a moment, is given to us through faith. But he also is the king of peace. He wants to bring peace between us and God. There is a separation that exists, but... Notice that righteousness comes before peace because you must be made righteous before there can be peace. Now, when it was written, was it written with this in mind? I, don't, I can't say definitively that it was, but it's, it is the order that we find that as I experience God making me righteous, now I can have peace with him. Let me read to you Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, having been justified... Be made righteous by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See the order? You're justified, you're made righteous, and then we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory. You You can spend countless hours of effort and resources trying to usher peace into your life, but there's only one way you can do that. There's only one way you will ever have peace, and that is to experience God's work in your heart of making you righteous. And then when you have this righteous standing before God, you will then have peace with God. And God is not going to take anybody and drag them into heaven against their will. In this lifetime, all of us must make a confession that we need this righteousness. That's what the king of uh, Melchizedek's name meant, but it's the work of Jesus Christ to make us righteous, as we we just read there in Romans chapter 5. So if you've yet to come to Jesus Christ, then you don't have peace with God. You're separated from him, and we know exactly why you're separated, because we were separated for the, for the exact same reason. Our sin separates us from God, and it puts enmity, not peace. It places enmity between us and the Lord. But God loves us so much that he was unwilling to leave it like that, so he sent his son, according to the order of Melchizedek, to bring righteousness to us. If you have yet to call upon Jesus, you need to do that. And when you do, he will forgive you of your sins and he will give you not just a a fresh start at righteousness. He's going to give you the righteousness of God. That's what's going to be imputed to your account. That's why we can read we are justified. And that is a that is a something that God will give to you and he's not going to take away. Now, we are still a work in process in terms of how we live our life, our character, our conduct. It's still of, of, of how we treat one another. We're still being sanctified. But when you come to Jesus Christ, you are immediately justified because that righteousness comes to you. And because his righteousness has come to you, you can now have peace. Isn't that what this world needs? You look around. And we see that in our culture, in this country, in politics, on every level, there is so much turmoil. There is so much hatred. There is so much division. But it's not just there. How about in our own hearts, in our own lives? Is there that peace ruling and reigning over us? Now, I want you to think about this. There's the peace with God, but there's also the peace of God. I believe you can be in a right standing with God and have peace with him as a believer, but your life can be marked with trouble and fear and not peace, not having the peace of God. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Let me give you one other uh, verse um, that talks about this work of Jesus. It's Romans 3, 21 through 23. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and prophets, so the law of the Old Testament, it told us that that this was coming. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. All of mankind is separated from the Lord, falling short of his divine standards. But Jesus came to make us righteous, And this is a beautiful thing. It is is God's righteousness that is given to you. Because that's the only righteousness that God will accept. It's like the idea that so many have is, well, I'm a pretty good person, and I think God will just let me in when I get there. That's not what the Bible says. I realize you may think that, and that's the hope that you have, but that's just your thoughts. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you definitely can go to heaven, but you come through Jesus Christ. And if you don't come through him, then you are going to appear before a holy, awesome God, apart from the one thing that he says you must have in order to enter his presence, and that is the righteousness of God. How could I possibly become like God and and righteous like that? Only because the Lord gives it to you, and he gives it to you through Jesus, and that comes through faith. So if you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus, Let me just say it clearly, you are not righteous, and therefore, if you were to pass today, you would not be in the presence of the Lord. But if you have done that, you can have a confidence that you will be, and we hope that every one of you will make that decision before you leave here. So, the name of Melchizedek is descriptive of Christ's work. And he is eternal like Jesus. Now we're going to go back into this in just another moment. But what he refers to there in verse 3 is no mom, no, no dad. Um, we don't know the day he was born. We don't know the day that he, he died. And it says, but made like the Son of God remains a priest continually. So these are the the main points that he's going to talk about, and he's going to dive deeper into each one of them. So let's do that. Verses 4 through 7, we already talked about the tithe. We've already talked about the blessing. But let's see how the author develops this point. He gave them information without any conclusions. They all would have recognized what he just said in verses 1 through 3 as exactly the account that's in Scripture. But now he's going to help them make the connection between Abraham, Melchizedek, and Jesus himself. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. So in the mind of the Jews, there was no man that was greater than Abraham. I mean, they, he's a father of our, of, of our nation. It's through him that the promise was first given that redemption would come through his bloodline. So to them, he's the greatest man, but he says, now consider how great this man was that even the patriarch Abraham, even him, he gave a tenth of spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. So hopefully you can see this. But the first point here is um, they receive tithes, the, the Levites do. But Melchizedek received tithes, but he's not a Levite. And he received tithes from the one that we think is the greatest. So the, the greatest among us gave tithes, but then also in return received that blessing. And he says, it's, there's not, this isn't even debatable. It is the lesser that's blessed by the better. Which is to say that Melchizedek was holding a greater place of honor and that Abraham even acknowledged it, and this is why he gave of um, his tithes to Melchizedek. And, and the other point is that he was blessed by him. Look at verses 8 through 12. Here we're going to see that the Levitical priesthood is going to be compared to Melchizedek. Here mortal men so the mortal men in this, this context this is the Levitical priesthood the sons of Aaron. Here mortal men receive tithes but there he Melchizedek receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. So these are mortal men that die, but he's somebody that just lives. The idea is that we have no record of his death. And so he's, he's playing upon this idea of the eternal aspect of this picture of Melchizedek. Verse nine, even Levi, who receives tithes, so the Levites will receive the tithes of the children of Israel, paid tithes through Abraham so to speak, for he was, while he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So it's like, listen, today, right, the Levites have been receiving the tithes, but back then the Levites paid tithes through Abraham, even though they weren't born yet, they paid tithes through Abraham. And so there's an acknowledgement, again, that this one uh, order of Levitical priest was acknowledging that there's a greater order and that greater order is Melchizedek. Um, And so again, this is why he says, I have hard things to say to you and you can follow his logic. It's there, but you've got to just stick with it. Now, verse 11, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood for under it, the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. So he writes now and he he says, listen, Aaron's sons dies, but Melchizedek lives. The Levites pay tithes through Abraham. But now in verse 11, the Levitical priesthood could not bring perfection. And you're like, well, how do we know that? This is how you know this. Because they would, if you made a sacrifice today and you sin tomorrow, guess what you were going to do? You're going to sacrifice again. And year by year, day by day, every day, all day long, at the temple, there was sacrifice. Animals were being offered up. Their blood was being spilled. So the, the logic is this. If that ministry of the Levitical priesthood would have been able to make somebody perfect, there would have not been continual sacrifices being made. But in contrast with this, and we'll get this later on, but I don't think we can really catch the significance of this if we don't at least think about it. How many times was Jesus sacrificed? Once. How many more times will Jesus be sacrificed? None. Why is that? Because in one sacrifice, he is able to make all men perfect who come to him. And so he's showing, he's like, look, the the Levitical priesthood, you had to come over and over again. And if this would have been the the group or the order that God wanted to use to bring um, perfection to mankind and bring him into that right standing with God, then he wouldn't have talked about another priesthood and that other priesthood is Melchizedek. So he's thinking of what he's about to say in verse 17 of that prophecy that we've already considered from Psalm 110. But the priesthood of the Levites couldn't make you perfect, but Jesus can. Jesus will make you perfectly righteous. This is so important for us to know. Because when we think that we are still flawed and we are still unacceptable to God, it can have a profound impact upon us. We're going to, we're to strap on the breastplate of what? Righteousness. Righteousness. It's so important that in spiritual warfare that we, we wear that. Because when you begin to think that you're just a loser of a believer and that you can never get anything right, the enemy will seize upon that and he'll say, you've already blown it. You might as well just go for it because you're a mess anyway. But when you know that you've been made perfect by Jesus, there's like, wait a minute. That's not true. And so you got the breastplate on. I'm able to absorb those blows that the enemy throws at me. And like, no, I am made righteous. I have a perfect standing before God in heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done. I'm not going to walk down that road. I don't have to walk down that road. So this piece of knowledge and information and truth about our righteousness is so important. But he also brings us a perfect peace, doesn't he? A perfect peace. The Lord doesn't want you to be troubled. He doesn't want you to be in turmoil in your life. He wants you to walk in the peace that he gives. There's a perfect love in Christ. I hope you have a lot of people around your life that love you. And I hope it it adds to your life. And if they aren't there, I hope that you'll make those friends. I hope that you'll develop those relationships within the body of Christ. And if it be the Lord's will, that he bring a person into your life, maybe a, a, you know, a husband or a wife, that you could, you could have that. But here's the thing. That's not perfect love. Perfect love is only found in one person, and it's in Jesus. So the, Aaron and, and they might have loved the people they were serving, but nobody loves you so perfectly as the way Jesus loves you. And we have a perfect purpose in Christ, don't we? In in Jesus, we, and in in salvation, we're not trying to figure out, you know, well, well, I gotta bring meaning to my life. Here's, Here's what you do. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you live for that which is eternal and God has said is important to me and this is what I want my people to do and you will have this divine purpose not only to know God but to serve the Lord. He gives a perfect joy too. A joy that's unspeakable Peter writes about. Jesus says I give a joy that it's not like what the world gives it's different. So the Levitical priesthood could not do those things. Now listen. Let's be careful. In talking like this and making this comparison about the priesthood, we're not saying it was terrible. We're not saying it was a mistake. God ordained it. God planned for it. God instituted it. But he never instituted it to last forever. It was for a time. It It was a holding place. And then... As the law passed away, so did those that served the law. And that's the point we see there in verse 12. Change of priesthood necessitates a change of system. You cannot talk about the Levitical order apart from talking about the law of Moses. That system that was in place by which men could come and have a right standing with God. So if you're gonna talk about the priesthood, you're gonna talk about the law. If you're gonna talk about the law, you're gonna talk about the priesthood. You, could not, you cannot separate those. So what he's saying there is, if the priesthood is being changed, then the system which they served, of necessity must also change. And isn't that what we find? Is that this, the old covenant is passed away. The new covenant has come in. This is a point, I'm not gonna spend much time here because it's gonna be developed a lot more as we move through these, these latter verses. In verses 13 through 17, we come to our last section. And here that we, we see that he is a priest according to prophecy. He says, verse 13, for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man officiated at the altar. What tribe is that? For it is evident that our Lord Jesus arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke, concerning, uh, spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, and he quotes from that psalm, one ten. you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a priest according to not the law of Moses, but Jesus is a priest according to this prophecy. And so he brings now this verse into their attention. So if you can just pause for just a moment. And just think about this. If you're sitting there and you're listening and finding out that this priesthood that you've gone to your entire life and generations of your family have gone to, you're now being told it's done, it's over, you don't go there anymore. And you're being told there's a new priesthood and it's Melchizedek. And he talks about Melchizedek, but Melchizedek predates the Levitical order, the law of Moses, by 400 years. It is possible that one could sit and think, wait a minute. Melchizedek was first, then came the the law of Moses, meaning that it superseded that which came before. So this is the one that's in place. And that would be true if it were not for Psalm 110, verse 4, that says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, because well after the establishing of the law is when that prophecy comes and puts it on the radar that this order of Melchizedek is going to have a fulfillment. So those that may be reasoning, well, no, no, no. This, you know, Melchizedek was first. Then God gave us this. So that's the one that's in place. And then there's this one little line of scripture that's tucked away for just the right moment. You know, again, I I said at the beginning, I want you to be thinking about this, that people often say is like, well, it's only in one place in scripture. So I really don't know if it's important. I really don't know if we have to obey that because it's only mentioned one time Can you you see how important this one mention is? Because if if the author doesn't have this prophecy to appeal to, then what is he appealing to to say that this would come from? What's the biblical basis to say that Jesus would be according to this order? But this is a very clear prophecy. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Moses clearly stated that the priesthood was through Levi. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. So how could he be a priest? Because of the prophecy. Because the prophecy said he would come not from that order, from a different. And this is how you can have one who is a king that can also be a priest from two different tribes. And so he's of the tribe of Judah, but he's of the order of Melchizedek. And that is how he can function. These are important things to the Jews. This this is the group that's thinking about cashing in their faith on Jesus and going back into this old system. And he's like, it's done. It's over. It's abolished. It's no longer in force. It's no longer in place. So such an important word of prophecy. So it answers the question, what priestly order is Melchizedek, or is Jesus? Well, he's of the order of Melchizedek. He would have had no right, according to the law, to serve as a priest in the Levitical order, and yet we know he serves as a mediator. He is the one mediator, the one priest between God and man. This is a very significant uh, point that's being made. But I wanna circle back before we wrap this up, and I wanna talk a little bit about this identity of Melchizedek. And there's two, two general ways in which people think about Melchizedek of, you know, uh, of Genesis. One is that he was a real man that um, lived in history, but we have no information about. So we don't know when he is. His, who, we don't know who his dad is. We don't know his mom. We don't know his genealogy. We don't know when he is born. We don't know when he, when he dies. And so in that sense, because we lack all of this uh, biographical data on this man, he just seems he's just a mysterious person that comes on the scene. And so the author of Hebrews says, in this way, he was a type of the eternal order that Jesus would bring. So think of it this way. Abraham took his son, his only son Isaac, to offer him up on Mount Moriah. And, and God stopped him. Abraham becomes a picture of the father. He's not the father. Isaac becomes a picture of Jesus, but he's not Jesus. Mount Moriah is Mount Moriah. And now, you know, centuries later, you have the father sending his only son up on that same mount to die, and you have the fulfillment of that ty- typological picture of Abraham and Isaac. But they're not really the father. They're not really the son. And in the same way, Melchizedek, the author borrows upon the lack of information about him to say that is a type of the Lord and how he's eternal. And, that, and that's how I would see it. I, I don't see uh, Melchizedek as um, uh, being a Christophany. A Christophany is an Old Testament appearance of Christ, which does happen. Now listen, I can see why many people say that, that he, this is a Christophany. And um, yeah, I, you know, when we get to heaven, we, you might be right and I might be wrong. But I'll tell you the main reason why I don't think that he is not a Christophany. Melchizedek is not a Christophany. And is found in verse 3. And I'll read the whole verse just so we can run into it. He is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. The phrase, but made like the Son of God. It's that word like that really keeps me from reaching. Now, I don't know. If, it, if, if that wasn't there, you would you would really wonder. And I know many still, they don't wonder. They'll, they'll argue fiercely that this is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. And so if it is, then, um, boy, it just makes the all the more interesting. But I, uh, my opinion is that's, that's not who he is. That he was just a man lacking all of those details. We don't have him in scripture. And so in this way, we know nothing about his beginning or ending. And so he represents the eternal nature of the Lord and how he's going to serve forever. So this is your priest. This is the one who is taking care of, of you, who's going before you to the Father, and he is doing it perfectly. There's nothing that's lacking in the salvation in Jesus Christ, and there is no other way. These Jews could not go to an old system that once was in place, but you can't go anywhere else. Jesus said it clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You can't come to it. there are not many roads that lead to God and salvation. There's one road and it's a narrow road. And it's a road that Jesus has paved for us with his own body and blood. And he is the high priest over this. And he will perfectly minister to you. So Jesus has a biblical foundation for his ministry as high priest. No doubt a charge that these believing Jews heard every single time they went to have dinner with family. You, you you're following Jesus He's of the tribe of Judah. He can't be a priest. What are you talking about? Don't know how to answer that one. That's probably how that conversation went. And so now the, this, this pastor, he lays it out for them and they could respond to it. Jesus brings us righteousness. He brings us peace with God. But I want to go back to that point that I made earlier and we'll close with this. But there's this other aspect of what Jesus does. Not just giving us peace with God, but he also wants us to have the peace of God. Peace with God is what happens when we are made righteous. The enmity is removed. I am now a citizen of heaven. But what he wants us to experience is a peace in our life. Isaiah 26, three and four says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, Yahweh, the Lord is everlasting strength. So the Lord wants you to walk in peace. Not just having peace with him and knowing that one day you'll be accepted into the presence of the Lord. But he wants you to have a peace in your life here and now. He wants you to have that shalom, that rest over your life. And we live in a chaotic world. And if we are not careful, the chaos can overtake us as well. And we can become, uh, you know, just as fearful and just as fretful as anybody else on planet Earth. But the key that we read in Isaiah is that our mind is stayed upon him. It's continually thinking upon him. When the peace goes from our life, when the the rest goes from our life, it's because we're thinking about something else or someone else. John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. See, the peace we have in Christ is different than any peace that is out in the world. And he says, and I'm giving it to you. And I want you to walk it out. It's the kind of peace that will keep your heart from being troubled. It's the kind of peace that will keep your heart from being afraid. When you know that you have a right standing with the Lord. And that he's watching over you. And he's looking over you. And now you have these troubling things that are coming into your life. You can just say, it's in your hands, Lord. I trust you. I rest in you. I'm not going to take care of it. Some of you are in a place where you have to delegate a lot of responsibility. You're, you, know, you're a, you have a lot of employees that maybe work underneath you, and you've got to delegate the responsibility out. And once you've done that, you can't, I would imagine if you were doing that, you have a lot of other things you have to be attending to, and you can't be sitting there and fretting over whether or not those people are going to do that because there are too many other decisions that you have to make you've got to move on. You've got to set your attention on the next thing. And, and so when you're a delegator, you learn how to just kind of like, well, it's got to be in their hands. Now, it doesn't mean you forget about it. At the appropriate time, you come back and you check on it. So it's not like you're ignoring it, but you're doing what you have to do. But you know, I think for some of us, we just can't do that with those issues of our life. We can't just say, I've committed it into the hands of the Lord to care for, to, to correct, to open the door, to close the door, to provide, to take away. Lord, it's in your hands. I trust you. And we don't do that. And we mull it over and over and over and over and over. And we don't let it go. And it causes us concern and more concern. You've got to come to the place where you trust the Lord so that you can have not just the peace with God, because you have that if, you already, or if you're saved, but you need to have the peace of God, this peace, John 14, 27, that he promised you would have, a peace that would keep you from feeling troubled in your spirit and afraid in your heart. That's what your high priest, Jesus, wants to do in your life. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. It is... It is so rich, it is so deep, and Lord, we agree, these are some hard things to follow and understand, but I pray you would give us the ability to see it, that we might see um, both the beauty and the precision of your word, but also the greatness of the one who serves as our high priest. Thank you, Lord, that you have sent your son, Jesus, both our king and our, and our high priest, if you're here this morning as we're praying and you've yet to confess Jesus as Savior and call upon him, we encourage you to do that right now. Receive that righteousness. You're like, yeah, but I'm a sinner. Yeah, that's why he came. And If you will acknowledge your sin before the Lord and ask him to cleanse you, he will give you through your faith the righteousness of God. And maybe you have already done that and you're a believer, but boy, peace is so far from your life. It's turmoil, it's anxiety. Your king doesn't want that for you. There is real rest and Jesus made it so plain. He says, it's not like the world. You're different, you're mine. What I give to you is vastly different. And if that's not something you're walking in, ask yourself, what are you pondering? What is it that your mind is stayed upon? Because there's a promise that if we will stay it upon the Lord, there will be peace.